0: Hello, baby. Want a kiss? Welcome to the Experimental Film Podcast with your host, Ken Hess.
1: Teaching a parakeet to talk is fun, but the old method took too much time and patience. This record is specially designed to teach any healthy, normal parakeet to talk by using a scientific new method that is acknowledged to be far superior, because a carefully trained voice, specially chosen for excellence in clarity and diction, repeats over and over and over and over. ...in a manner that most parakeets are most likely to imitate.
0: Check ExperimentalFilm.info for information, interviews, and episodes.
1: For the next few seconds, this record will be silent.
0: This podcast is dedicated exclusively to Experimental Film and its makers.
1: Welcome everyone to Season 3, Episode 12 of the Experimental Film Podcast. Today's guest is Experimental Filmmaker Dave Baumler. Dave's film, 30 Second Thoughts, was an official selection and the audience favorite in this year's Experimental Film Fest that happened on October 22nd. Dave Baumler is a filmmaker in Raleigh, North Carolina. For over 30 years, he has made short films, mostly experimental, that have played in festivals and art galleries worldwide. David has also written and directed television for the History Channel and has worked in advertising agencies as a creative director. He currently leads the video and animation team in the marketing department at Red Hat, an enterprise software company. Welcome to the Experimental Film Podcast, Dave. Oh, thanks. Thanks so much for
2: having me, Ken. This is an honor, and I loved being at the—I was able to attend in person the Experimental uh, Film Fest in New Bern uh, this year, and it was wonderful. Great
1: experience. Oh, thank you. I appreciate that. Well, let's get started by having you tell us uh, a little bit about yourself and your work. Oh, yeah, for sure. So, you know, I grew up in the
2: 70s and 80s, and I really just loved all these Hollywood movies, right? So I my dad would take me to the movies, and uh, I just thought everything was great. And I didn't have any sort of really experimental background, except for that my uncle had been a, uh, an abstract expressionist painter. And so we had a lot of sort of more avant-garde art around our house. But then when I was about, I'd say about 16, I saw David Lynch's <laughs> Blue Velvet, and that really blew my mind because here was a, a film that was in just a cineplex uh, in, in Buffalo um, that really was doing something so different. And I kind of knew at that point I wanted to make films, but I wanted to make films that felt you know maybe a little bit different than the norm. And then I went to a, a college uh, in upstate New York called a Bard, which is uh, an experimental First film school, so I didn't go to NYU or to UCLA or a, a big a film school, but I went to Bard, and, and it immediately put a Bolex in your hands and said, "Just go for it." Some great experimental uh, film teachers there: Peter Hutton, who was a, a great experimental filmmaker; Adolphus Makis, who's who's great on his own, but you know his brother Jonas Makis was you know like sort of one of the uh, you know gods of experimental filmmaking, uh, and so that really re-educated me completely. So I went from really loving Hollywood films to now loving Hollywood films and loving this experimental world. And so after that, I started making films out of college. I made some narrative films and then I started making these more experimental films. And I really, though I, I, I (laughs) I like narrative films, it really fed the soul to work on more experimental pieces where I wasn't so concerned about why this character does this and what their arc is and what the next plot point is to really explore an idea and a visual style and really get, uh, try to say something new with the medium itself. And so that's kind of where I've been for the last 30 years uh, is just trying different things each time. um, And uh, you know, I, I
1: super enjoy it. Oh, great to hear. In fact, it was really cool to meet you at the film festival. I'm sorry I couldn't go out to you guys afterward, but, I was exhausted because this year my wife and I didn't have any helpers last year. We had three helpers this year it was just, she and I doing it and um, <clears throat> man, it was tough. And so after, you know, after the festival, it was like, we had to break everything down. And then, oh, yeah, you yeah. know, I was, I had changed shirts, you know, from, cause when I set everything up, I had on a festival shirt and then, Midway through, you know, it was I was soaking, and so I went back home, put on my proletariat shirt that you saw, <laughs> and um you know, came back and and worked out the rest of the night. But man, even even at the end, I would have had to go on home and taken a shower because I was yeah uh, yeah yeah I was amazed. I know yeah really well game. one thing <laughs> that
2: one thing I thought was amazing about the festival itself is a you packed the house which was super impressive on a Saturday night. Uh, you know, in New Bern, but the audience wasn't, you know, it's not like they were people who were aficionados of experimental film and trying to see the latest. They they were people with very open minds who maybe had never seen experimental film before, who wanted to experience something new. I talked to many people after the festival who said this was their first experience with experimental film and they were really appreciative And, and experimental filmmaking can be challenging. I mean, if you've just watched you know films on netflix or in the theater uh you you're not really ready for all the different things that you're going to experience um in an experimental film and so the openness of the audience i just was it was so energizing to see the audience watching each film reacting and and really being engaged
1: yeah it is really cool in fact i did it here last year this is this was the third year and um last year we had some really out there kind of stuff but i mean this year, you know, the energy was, was totally different. We had fewer people last year. The place was absolutely standing room only. And, um, you know, it, it was crazy, but there was so much else going on in New Bern. I mean, there's always a ton of stuff going on here, you know, live music and there's, you know, everything, but gosh, that night there was a ghost walk and there was, you know, music, there was all this stuff going on in town. It was a it was a bad night. Like I told people there in the the festival, I said, I really appreciate you being here because there's a thousand other things you could be doing right now in New Bern. And um, it was cool that they, they came there and I really tried to respect the, um, the amount of time it took to be there because of everything else that was going on. Last year's festival was much longer, but uh, this year I figured, well, if I'm going to keep an audience, yeah, I need to make it, Just a little bit shorter, but still we played 21 films, actually 22, because I I put mine in first so that, you know, people could kind of get used to it. So, yeah, I thought
2: thought it was it was an amazing program, too. That was the other thing that I really appreciated is that you had films from all over the world. Uh, Each one. The quality was super high and also was so, each one was so different. I can remember really clearly, you know, after 21 films, a lot of times it's just like a blur, but I could really clearly recall most of those films. And, uh, you know, I loved too that you had the filmmakers, if they couldn't be there in person, to film a little intro. So you got to hear a little bit from them. I thought that was, I don't see that at other festivals. And I thought that was a great innovation. I, I'd love to see other festivals do that.
1: Yeah, I thought of that this year. You know, because I was going to do the, you know, I was going to take their stuff off the of film freeway and and read it before the thing. And but it disrupts the flow of the festival to do that. So I thought, hey, I'm going to ask the filmmakers if they'll make a short, one to two minute video. Some of them went much longer than that, as you saw. But <laughs> anyway, it was it it was really cool because you got yeah you got to meet all the filmmakers exactly. Basically, I loved it. Yeah, I I really, I thought that was pretty cool too. Um, You know, even though I do say so myself, (laughs) (laughs) but yeah, that was, it was just a brainstorm. I just thought of it and I, I've never seen that at a festival either, you know, either the filmmakers are there or they're not, and they just kind of play one film right after the other. But uh, some of the feedback last year was, you know, we need some context. So I thought, well, who better to give you the context than the filmmaker themselves
2: yeah, totally agree. I love I I thought that was great. I hope you do that every year. Yeah, and I hope I'm like I say, to. I hope other festivals think to do it.
1: Yeah, yeah. So anyway, um I really enjoyed, you know, uh, having you guys at the fest you and Stefan. Uh, Stephan yeah it was great
2: to meet him too and i listened to his episode of the podcast before like I, as i was driving from raleigh to Newburn, I, I listened so i felt like i knew i think i kind of creeped him out because <laughs> i like knew all the stuff about him and i knew like his his camera setup, all the stuff and uh and he was like who are you and i was like oh i just listened to your podcast and so it was really it was really fun to meet him in person and to have heard him uh you know on your
1: show yeah that is pretty cool it's it's cool to to connect with other filmmakers and that's why you know in these podcasts some of them go an hour or more and I tell people at the very first when we do the little you know warm up before the recording it's like man I could talk I could talk to these guys for like 3 hours I could just make an afternoon of it right and talk to people because there's there's so much to talk about there's so many cool aspects but um you know, I, I cram as much into this podcast as possible, and it's it's great to have filmmakers on, and, and we've got some really good ones. Well, between the last one I did and, and yours, we've got some really good ones coming up. I think people will really enjoy them. This season three is um, pretty exciting because I I'm interviewing a lot of um, what I would call really avant garde people who gosh. It's hard to even describe, um, like yourself, someone who's been doing this a long time and you know, you're good at it and you, you know, you, you scored. I mean, you, you put a film in the festival and you scored Stefan did the same thing. It's like, you know, people who know what they're doing can, can get into films and mm. film festivals. And you asked me before the show, you know, um, kind of what turns me on? What, what do I look for in experimental films and stuff? I look for something um of course different, something that excites me. You know, sometimes it's a, a music style video, sometimes it's an experimental documentary, sometimes it's you know moth parts glued to <laughs> right, right bracket thing, yeah. Yeah, so you know, it just depends really. It's it's a it's a feel. It's kind of like I tell people when you come up with a great idea whether it's for a film or a book or whatever, it's like standing an egg up, you know, on the equinoxes. You can actually stand one up anytime, by the way. But when you stand an egg up and it stands there, there's a feeling in your hand. You can feel it go into place. That's what a great idea is. And when I see a film, especially like yours and Stefan's and the one that I just fell in love with was called Mother it was the oh, Icelandic right. yeah. one. Oh, yeah, yeah Actually, yeah. the Faroe Islands one.
2: Yeah, uh, yeah, yeah, for sure, yeah.
1: There was something hauntingly beautiful about the music. There was something really cool about the costuming. Of course, the yeah. beautiful cinematography. I mean, that yeah. film...
2: It was exceptional. Yeah, that one, too. Yeah, that still sticks with me because of the... Amazing art direction, the precision in the choreography. Um, it reminded me a bit of like a Matthew Barney film, who, who you know, he he did all those Cree Master films, where there's right. such a great vision for the art direction and the style. So yeah, that 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 one definitely lit me up too.
1: Yeah, the other one I really enjoyed was the one from Georgia the country. We had one from Georgia the state, which played right before the one from Georgia the country, which I thought was funny, but. I don't know if anybody else got it or not.
2: Yeah, 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 for
1: sure. <laughs> the one from Georgia the Country, you can see some of the Georgia countryside. And you also, it was a very unusual film. It was the one with the three characters. Yeah, amazing
2: costumes. Yeah. yeah. The, co- the costume design was amazing. And this table that was made out of wax. Yeah. And the, it was Oblivion, right? That was the name yes, of it. Oblivion. Very good. Yeah. 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 That was terrific.
1: In fact, one of my other favorite films was the one from Slovenia the guy with the beard who kind of dreamed and he became part of the dream and he was part of that tribe. Mm-hmm. Yeah, yeah, yeah. 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 God, that was so cool. I told her, I said, I'd like to see that as a feature length film.
2: Yeah. It had that, it had that cinematic quality where you felt like this is just a part of a feature. Yeah. Right. Cause the, when it pulls back at the beginning and the guys getting up and all the people around him, you don't know if they're asleep or they're dead and, yeah. and you're, You're like, oh, and the, and the Vista is amazing. And so, yeah, you're totally get the sense of a story right from that opening shot. I thought that was a great, that was a great piece too.
1: Yeah. And I liked it when he came kind of toward the camera and gave a little smile and then walked off with those other tribesmen. It's like, that's the world you want to be in for some reason. That's the world I wanted to be in. I wanted to put on one of those furry hats and, (laughs) you know, I wanted wanted to be there.
2: You look good in those hats.
1: (laughs) Anyway, it was a lot of fun being at the festival. And I I really appreciate you guys coming and um, I hope you enjoyed New Bern as well.
2: Oh yeah, for sure. It's a beautiful town. And, uh, yeah, I got to, you know, walk around a bunch, um, before and after the festival. And I guess I just missed Mum fest, which I heard is like, you know, spectacular. Um, but, but there was a lot, I mean, there was a lot, you could tell, just like you said, there was a lot going on that time of year and, um, and again, I met a lot of, I met a really interesting poet, uh, Sam Love at the yeah. uh, festival as well. And he sent me some of his poetry afterwards. And again, like he, he was saying, there's this sort of this crazy nexus of artists and artistic people who gravitate. He had this um, idea that maybe it's because it's where two rivers converge. Uh, and that was maybe energetically a place where a lot of artists congregate. And I thought that was a great, that was a great idea. Um, uh, and I really appreciated connecting with him too.
1: Yeah. He's a very cool guy. I, that's the first time I'd met him as well. And, um, you know what, there is something weirdly attractive about new Bern, not just the way it looks, which is really cool, but there's something about it. And I think there has been for 300 years, you know, because people keep coming here and they keep enjoying it. And I've said this many times, <clears throat> We seem to kind of have the best of the best here because while you do have a a really cool, I want to say native population, people who are from here, Mm. but then you've got a lot of people coming in from New York, New Jersey, Maryland, Pennsylvania, and everywhere else. I mean, we came in from Oklahoma, but um, you've got all these people who appreciate the arts, appreciate beauty, I guess, for one thing, and appreciate... The, you know, colonial, Victorian, Gregorian, Edwardian architecture. (laughs) And, you know, the, I don't know. There's just, there's just something sort of magical about it. I don't even know how to describe it. Yeah, um, for sure. Anyway, I, I really like living here and um, it's, it's just a cool place. If anybody ever gets a chance to to come out and visit, it's really worth the trip. So absolutely. Anyway, back to you and your film. (laughs) (laughs) so i've watched most of your films on vimeo and first of all i have to ask just like 30 second thoughts who is your narrator oh
2: yeah well yeah and this is a long time collaboration i've had with a fella named kevin silva who is a bit of a raleigh legend because he was on a long time morning show called reynolds and silva so if you're of a certain age and you you live in Raleigh you know the Reynolds and Silva show cuz this was a very famous um radio show but i got to know kevin after he was done with his radio career and he was in um you know he was uh, acting uh and doing a a bunch of um commercial gigs and so i got to know him through there and i put him in a film that i was working on as an act as an on-screen actor and then i went to him i i was doing this film called no day no night and i said hey kevin would you would you mind reading this script for me? I think you'd have this really good voice for it. And I played him this film that I love, this experimental film called The End by Christopher McLean. And I said, I'm going for this kind of vibe. It's this sort of like almost 50s omniscient narrator, sort of detached, but like, can you give me this? And he read the script and I think he thought I was like an insane person. He was like, I have no idea what this, what you're talking about in this film or like what what I just read. Um, but he, you know, went along with it and he gave me a great read and then he saw the film probably about a year later when it was done with it. And he, it sort of blew his mind and he really appreciated it. And I think over the years he's, you know, keeps, he keeps referring to it. This, this again, is like 20 something years ago. Uh, and he was like, anytime you want me to voice uh, a film for you. I'm there. Just ask. And so I love his voice so much. And so I always want him to be in my stuff. And of, of course, because 30 second thoughts is a like always, you know, it's a continuing series. I just finished the second um, series of it. Uh, it's supposed to be almost like television commercials from like another dimension. And so he's the perfect voiceover guy to be both, you know, like a commercial, like he sounds like a, a broadcast guy. Cause he is, but at the same time, he's got this really great feel for the other, almost sort of otherworldly, like it's, it's just off center. So, um, he's a joy to work with and he's, uh, one of the best in the business.
1: Yeah. I, I love his narration. In fact, I, like I said, I watched your films. I was like, okay, I gotta know who this guy is. Cause he's just too good to be just some random schmo off the street. Right. 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 <laughs>
2: <laughs> yeah he's amazing he's amazing like every time he does a read you know we'll we'll you know and again i think i every time i send him a script i think he probably has the same impression of like huh wh- what is this about like what am i supposed to do with this and then we talk about it and we work through it and he just gives me these amazing reads and the hardest job i always have is picking you know either one reader i'll i'll, I'll maybe uh, edit a few together but you know, he gives these great little nuance, these pauses, these bits, and you're just like, ah, oh, you're such a pro. It's it's fantastic.
1: Yeah, I like your films because, I mean, there's a running theme, if you, if you didn't already know that, sort of. It's almost this surrealistic world that you create, and it's almost like this, it's supposed to be normal, but for us it's not normal. <laughs> but for that world right. it's normal. Yeah, yeah. So <laughs> it's kind yeah. of fun because they're almost like, Profiles or documentaries or even short biographies from another world.
2: Yeah. And I used to, that's really, that's really, um, uh, that's right on the note. I used to call a bunch of my films dream portraits because what I was always trying to do is I would film a person that I know, like in a time and a place. It's almost like, oh, if I was just doing like a documentary about a, a like my wife were in Norway. And we're living there, and I want to capture like the time and place of us living in Norway. But instead of just filming her in Norway, I make a character out of her. I find a voiceover uh, artist and I, uh, you know, write a script that isn't my wife, but it is like the ideas or the thoughts I was having in that place. And so then that becomes the film. And then so sh- I. When I watch that film, I think, oh, there's Sandy in Norway. That was a great time. But then I also remember all the thoughts and feelings I was having at the time. So it is it is like layering almost like a normal time or a normal like travelogue of a a place uh, with, uh, you know, I don't want to call it philosophical, but with an essay sort of over top of it that might be somewhat otherworldly.
1: Yeah, it's almost, you know, that first film that I showed the student film, um, Our Dandelions, really so bad. It's like the music was this happy music, right? But right. you keep expecting something really nuts to happen because it's just a little too happy. It's almost like yeah, yeah, right, yeah.
2: wives or something. You don't trust it, yeah. Yeah,
1: <laughs> that's right. And that's how your film struck me. It's like okay, it's just it. It's kind of like this sweet insane thing. I don't know how else to describe it, but it's, yeah. it's, it's cool. And it's, it, it's nice. It's well done, but it's, it's just on the verge of being really, did I take a pill earlier? Or something
2: I <laughs> yeah. and That's probably a lot of the David Lynchian, you know, that his influence, his influence really does loom large because I loved the idea that, He he was a big fan of reading the Hardy Boys and mystery stories when he was younger. And he said that he always was disappointed at the end when, you know, oh, it was the butler or, you know, like there's always like a quick tie up at the end where it feels kind of tacked on. He said, I love the mystery, but I hate the conclusion. And I really internalized that a lot. And I, I feel like and maybe that's why narrative film always didn't feel like the thing for me, because you have to wrap things up in a plot, like a good plot ties things together, and I and I appreciate a, a good plot as much as anybody. But um, I don't always. I want people to sort of come away, and this is maybe the whole idea behind the film that was in the festival. Thirty second thoughts is the idea is it's a second. You're having second thoughts about things, not just it's thirty seconds, but it's you're you have to think again at the end of it because. I'm not sure what how I should feel how I should feel about that, so I'm not tying it up. I'm actually like opening it up at the end so that people can you know think a little bit more about it,
1: yeah, I like that. I like something that makes you want to have a discussion about it afterwards. You know when you tell a story sometimes, you know you have a beginning, middle end and a you know a climax conclusion, and you know maybe you tie up a few loose ends, but I think that the the better stories or the better films. Are probably the ones that make you have questions and make you want to discuss it. It's like, gosh, I wish I could talk to this guy and find out. You know, am I am I reading this correctly or what? Yeah, you know, something like yeah. that that starts a conversation to me is extremely valuable.
2: Yeah, my dad took me to to 2001: A Space Odyssey when I was ten, and again, like you know, the end of that film, you're just left with, what am I supposed to make of? what just happened in the last, you know, 20 minutes of that film, I, that I'm, I'm, you know, there's no narrator, there's no dialogue. You're just left with this experience. And, uh, you know, as a 10 year old, you're really blown away by that. And when my son turned 10, they just happened to be playing 2001 at the IMAX here in Raleigh. And so I took him and I think it's really had a big impression. I, four years later, he still talks about that film as like, uh, an amazing experience he had.
1: Yeah, that one's really cool. In fact, it's one of my favorites. And in fact, just to let you know, and of course this is going to let the cat out of the bag for everybody, but I'm hoping on my deathbed, I have enough sensibility and sense of humor to say, my God, it's full of stars. (laughs) That's what (laughs) I want. My last words to be that. That's great. That's great. That's great. So anyway, like, like you stated at the festival in and, and just a few minutes ago, experimental films can be extremely challenging. And, you know, I think the reason is because there's not that three, you know, there's yes. not a beginning, yes. middle, and end necessarily. And I tell people there may not be characters. There may not be dialogue. There may not be a plot. In fact, there may not even be a point. I mean, the only point is to enjoy the visual and possibly audio experience. I mean, how does that, how does that ring with you? Yeah. Well, it's
2: funny. I was telling Stefan about this experience after the festival, we were talking about different experimental films that we had seen over the years. And I told him about this, this experience I had in Boston. I used to, um, go out with this experimental film group that met at MassArt, um, every couple of weeks. And this one time they had this, um, this woman who was an experimental filmmaker from the seventies. And she was showing a film that she said she had only shown one other time, um, back in the seventies. And she was going to show it again that night. And, um, she was hoping we would all enjoy it. But basically it was that she had gotten a bunch of, um, film, like a, as a film grant, she had gotten a bunch of, uh, unexposed film. And so she just, uh, made clear leader out of it. She just exposed it completely, or, or uh, here's. I'm sorry. Let me go back. So what she did was she she put the film in a camera, and she took a projector that was just shooting white light at a screen. And she then turned her camera on, and so she's just filming white, a white screen. And then she took a rheostat, a like a dimmer switch, and over the course of forty minutes, she turned the brightness up. Uh, and about the middle, and then turn the brightness back down. so And like very slightly. So very slightly, it got brighter. And then very slightly, it got dimmer towards the end of the film. And you knew this going. So going into the film, I knew what the film was about. And you, you think to yourself, this is going to be the worst film experience of my life. Uh, I have so many other things to do. I uh, don't want to be here for 45 minutes watching a, a white screen get slightly brighter and slightly dimmer. But at the same, so, so first you're struggling, right? You're saying like, I got to get out. Can I sneak out? Then you're saying to yourself like, okay, well, maybe I could think through my to-do list, like maybe like I can make a to-do list and be productive in my head while I'm sitting here. And then you get to this point where you say to yourself, I'm going to submit to this film, whether I like it or not. I, it's like an act of submission to the experience. And then you kind of – so you go through almost these stages of acceptance uh, with with this film. And, again, I would not suggest anybody go necessarily see this film or stare at a bright wall for 45 minutes. But it it did teach me something. and I still think about that film in that I had an experience – um, maybe just like you know, Michael Snow has the the film "The Central Region," which is like four hours of a camera sort of spinning around. But it starts out very slow and it and it ends really slow. Uh, and so while I again like not everybody wants that experience, that would be in- entirely challenging for m- most audiences. But you can get something out of nearly every experimental experience because it's it's all about you. It's all about how it, 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 at some point it reflects on you and your experience as a human being. And the film itself is just a conduit to getting into your own head or your own you know your own personhood. I don't know if that makes any sense, but that that's that's what it was to me, and uh, I don't know how you feel about the the experimental films that have really resonated with you.
1: you know, the ones that I really like are. I don't know. I'm not sure I could have sat through 45 minutes of that. <laughs> I would have gone. It needs to be shorter, like a lot right, shorter. Right, right. Yeah. yeah, I'm yeah. Like, I can, I can wrap this up in about two minutes, <laughs> but you know, Andy Warhol did one called yes. Empire, yeah, yeah. which was the Empire yeah. State Building over eight yeah. hours. It's like, yeah. And sleep. Yeah. Yeah. You know, if somebody would sit there and watch eight hours of the Empire State Building, I'd give them a hundred dollars. Yeah.
2: But I think, you know, that too, <laughs> You know, he had Andy Warhol had the factory. And I think that as much as he filmed, you know, like I think there are people who think, like, yes, let's have this experience where we where we watch in a theater. I think it was mostly meant as what he would call wall, moving wallpaper. So as he would have his parties at the factory and the Velvet Undergrounds playing in one part and people are doing performance art in another part. There's just Empire is just playing on a wall, um, and not meant to be viewed, you know, maybe as a it's a cinematic experience, but, right. but meant to be viewed as, as something that's just a cool, like almost like a, like a painting of the empire state building. You could go back up to it at any, at any point and experience it, but not meant to be sat through for, for eight right. hours.
1: You're exactly right. It's more of background than anything else. You know, um, <clears throat> speaking of some other experimental films, have you ever seen peace Touche by, uh, Martin Arnold? No, I haven't seen that. Yeah. If you look it up on, um, YouTube, you can find the whole thing there. It's called Peace, P I E C E, with an accent over the E. I think it's like piece. Um And then the second word is Touche, T O U C H E E, mm-hmm. with maybe an accent over one of those. Anyway, mm-hmm. it's, it's a really cool piece. It's like, I don't know, 14 minutes long or something. And um, it starts out a little slow and tedious, but there's a payoff. It, it gets better, yeah. you know? Um, but it's i laughed so hard in fact mm. i was showing it to my wife and i was laughing so hard it was almost like if i had seen someone awesome. laughing at this weird movie i i would think they're insane you know and she <laughs> looks at me and she goes why are you laughing at this i go it's just hilarious to me because great. The, the jitter it's it's kind of a jitter and yeah. as, it, as it jitters it moves forward slightly yeah and there's some repetition to it. it's like you, yeah. you've got to see it. It's one of the Yeah. Oh, I'll one, totally look at it. Yeah. yeah, it's one of the ones if you can if you can get through it, it's it's so cool. You're gonna go at the end, you're gonna go, Oh my god, I need to look at that again. Yeah. But anyway, yeah. Martin yeah. Arnold well, is a he, he's a good experimental filmmaker. Oh, that's so awesome.
2: Yeah, I, I know the the ones, you know, because I in college I'd seen so many experimental films, but the ones that usually and this is something that you had sort of mentioned is the ones that really spoke to me were not maybe the purely visual, like there are, there were some, you know, like a lot of Stan Brackage films. I, I really love and really appreciate. And I, I love Ernie Gare's serene velocity, which is basically just a hallway that it's just sort of jumps back and forth. Um, and some of Michael Snow's films, like wavelengths, like th- those are all really cool. But the ones that I, um, gravitated towards were the ones that had almost like an essay quality. So I mentioned Christopher McLean's The End. I think that's an amazing film. But Chris Marker's films like Sans Soleil or John Smith uh, does a film called The Girl Chewing Gum or The Black Tower. So these are films that have experimental techniques and they're not a narr- like a beginning, middle and end narrative. But there is a thread. There is still an arc. And, and I th- feel as the audience, you can you can feel when you're midway through one of those films uh, rather than just like moth light with brackage that could go on for an hour. It could go on for 10 minutes. You just don't, you don't know. It's still amazing. But um, you know, some of these other films that had like a little bit more of a signpost always spoke to me. And maybe because I had, you know, really a strong narrative background um, I wanted at least some of that. And that's why I, I, I still put, you know, voiceover and narration in my own work, because I I, I just really like giving the audience something to grab onto while, you know, the visuals are doing something else.
1: Yeah, you know, um, one of my, uh, there are filmmakers who, it's kind of like music or art or anything else, or or even beer, as I tell people. (laughs) It's like, just because you think you're supposed to appreciate it doesn't mean, I guess, that you really need to. I mean kind of like Ken Jacobs is a famous filmmaker Yeah. But yeah. his films yeah. I I can't watch them they're too they're too flashy it it makes me crazy and I'm not mm-hmm. I, don't, I don't have epilepsy but it's like dude that I couldn't I I can't do it I can't focus on it because it's just too flashy and and stuff mm-hmm. and it's yeah okay it just makes me nuts I can't do it <laughs> you <laughs> know <laughs> and I want to appreciate his films and I guess I do but it's like who can sit there and watch that? I mean,
2: yeah, it's interesting because, uh, growing up in, in Buffalo, you know, Paul Sheritz and Tony Conrad were both filmmakers who worked in that flicker sort of, or metric film. Uh, you know, so there was a lot of that. I saw a lot of that flashing (laughs) film style in Kubelka, uh, you know, um, so, yeah, I get, you know, I think it's kind of whatever you get used to, too, you know, and Ken Jacobs, too. Like there's certain of his films like Star Spangled to Death, which I, I do really like. And there's other ones where he will just take a, a piece of like a almost like a corporate film and just show. I think I remember there's a film where he just shows like a BF Skinner documentary just all the way through. He doesn't edit it. He doesn't change it at all. But he just sort of says, like, this is a, something that you need to watch um all the way through. And I'm like, oh, that's a sort of an interesting. It's again, it's conceptual art, it's not um creating something wholly new it's it's putting a new context on things, which again is a is sort of a, f- a form of art um uh and you can like it or or not uh and uh you know and again like i that's not what I do, but i I try to again put it back on myself of like what am I learning by by seeing it right
1: right, you know and and I notice you and I both have a kind of a theme uh well found footage is where I'm going with this. You, oh yeah. Yeah. You use found footage in your films and I use found footage in some of mine mixed with you do your own cinematography too. I mean, mm-hmm. the the yeah. drug, the drug, um, <laughs> the was
2: Abernor thing. Yeah.
1: Abernor. That was your, that was your yeah. cinematography. I mean, you, yeah, you, yeah. you can't find, you know, stock footage like that. I mean, that had to be yours, but you know, the first one, the attack on the system, uh, or, yeah,
2: that's all. Yeah, f- that's um, found footage, footage from the Prellinger archives. Yeah, yeah. Yeah.
1: So, how do you? I, I guess my my big question is, and I always like to ask this of of experimental filmmakers: Where do you get your ideas? How do you know what piece of film you want to go grab or make? Yeah.
2: No, it's a great question, and I I I was listening to one of your early podcasts too about where you find your ideas, and I I love this idea of listening to people talk and keeping a, maybe like a little journal of, of what, uh, you know, people say, I, I definitely, I do the same thing. And I, when I was teaching, um, film, I would also tell students like, that's an important thing because when you hear something, it, it sparks an idea that sparks an idea that sparks an idea for me, I do a lot of, I it usually starts with automatic writing. I'll, I'll write up, but I'll have like, Oh, this is a theme that I'm interested in. And I'll, I'll write and write and write and write, write And then I'll take bits and I'll cobble them together into like a quasi voiceover script. And then from there, I'll say, well, what do I need to tell this visually? And maybe it's like a list of shots that I want to go out and get myself. Like no, the, the the film I did early on, No Day, No Night, that was film that I shot all over the world. I took a Bolex with me wherever I would travel. And I I would say like, oh, I need a bunch of churches or, or I need a bunch of um, you know, street scenes where my wife is walking and running from this place to this place. So I would just get that footage as I was just going around because I knew it would, it would serve the, the voiceover of this. But a lot of people, when they saw that film, a lot of people called it a found footage film or a, uh, you know, like a stock footage film because they thought like, oh, I just like went out and found a lot of stock footage. Um, but no, it was like intentionally shot. But then there are other times where I'm like, oh, I really want I did a film called Safety, which is, uh, you know, it's almost like a, it's almost if you had f- accidentally found a 1950s documentary about the end of the world. And so I used a lot of 1950s footage um, from the Prowlinger archives, but it was all to serve this voiceover that I had already written and already knew kind of how it would flow. So I really, I think, yeah, it all starts with that, um, whatever that voiceover I hear in my head and, and write down. And then um and then whether I find whether I shoot the footage myself or whether I find it um somewhere, you know, it's all it's
1: all good, right? Yeah. I like the um <clears throat> there's a particular film that resonated with me, and it's one of those that you shot in probably Germany or Switzerland or somewhere, Ishkanzi Sie nicht verstehen.
2: Ah uh, yeah, yeah, I cannot understand you. Yeah, that yeah. was shot in Vienna.
1: Oh, okay. <laughs> well, um, You know, a German speaking country, but it it was kind of interesting because the visuals and the auditory, you know, the soundtrack, they don't really go together. Can you kind of explain Mm -hmm. what your idea was there?
2: Yeah, well, what I thought was funny about that film is probably the inspiration from it came as I was going around Vienna. I found this old, they call it a portable tape recorder, but it was like probably like 50 pound uh, tape recorder that I saw at a flea market. And I was like, well, that's just a great object. I just love the look of it. And I thought, well, it would be fun if the narrator of this film, which is about sort of being in different cultures or just trying to understand other people or trying to understand art. And what is the really the point of understanding when we can just enjoy life or just experience life without like having angst about um, trying to put in a layer of understanding on things. So I thought this a uh, tape recorder would be a good sort of narrative device that would connect all the footage together. So I and some friends of mine just we would walk around Vienna uh, and 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 film this tape recorder in all these different places, um, sometimes to the chagrin of the the police there, who would tell us to leave. Uh, but the then I, I thought like, all right, well you know because it's a tape recorder, it's also recording the the, um, the area around. So I took a lot of just ambient sounds of like when you're on the subway or when you're in a, an open air market. Uh, and then I layered in a lot of, um, just music that I felt was maybe celebratory or festive, uh, you know, to, again, like, I, I don't want my film. You might notice this. I, I don't want my films to be too heavy. Like I like exploring deeper themes, but I also want to have some fun, uh, and I, and I want them to be, uh, enjoyable and sometimes even funny. Uh, so, you know, I, I think that that, the, the music in that film has a lightness to it that maybe some of the narration, uh, you know, doesn't, you know,
1: in contrast to. So did the police in Austria say, please, when they asked you to leave? No, no. They said, <laughs> up and see, like,
2: come and see And like a passport. Uh, I remember I was at a, uh, an open air screening of, a of a, um, of a film. I wanted a film screen in the background and the, and the, and the tape recorder in the foreground. And this, these people came up to me who were running the, the show. And I had this bolex and I'm doing like single framing and they, you know, in, in German, they told, they said like, you know, what are you doing here? And, you know, you can't do that basically. And so I didn't know, I don't know much German, but I knew enough German to say base, basically, Oh, I'm a filmmaker from the United States. And, They just said, so what? And so I acted like I didn't understand them. And so I just said louder, I'm a filmmaker from the United States, German. And then they just sort of said, "Okay," and they just walked away. And that was the end of that conversation. So I guess playing the ignorant American card uh, worked for me in that in that situation.
1: I would have if they told
2: me to leave, I'd say
1: constipation. Bitte sagen? <laughs> Can you <Yeah>. say please? <laughs> yeah. You know. Well, I think
2: I I ended up saying it Kanzi Nick verstehen so often in in uh, in Vienna that that was sort of like a joke too of the film, even though it's it means you know I cannot understand you which is what the film is about but I I remember saying it so often because yeah. I I don't uh, know um, German just enough to n-
1: not understand I guess. Well, you would think with your last name you would be able to speak German. Right? Yeah, just by yeah just by birthright I should know German that's right you should just be born knowing it <laughs> like yeah. like animals they understand right. every language I think
0: yeah.
2: Yeah. <laughs> well and my grandmother uh who who did speak German grew, lived in our house and so I you know you'd pick up things from her but I not not ever I you know when you're a kid you're too stupid to know you should right. take advantage of this of the learning situations you have and I wish I would have learned more German from my grandmother
1: yeah well there were there were, my grandfather was such an unusual fellow. There were people in town after he died, many years after he died, would ask, come up and ask me, hey, what does this mean? He, your granddad used to say this to me. Like this one guy com, comes up to me. I worked with him. He goes, hey, I want to ask you a question. He goes, your granddad, every time he saw me, would call me Jargo. Does that mean something? I go, <laughs> he called you Jargo? <laughs> <laughs> and I said, I said, I have no idea what that means. It doesn't mean anything in any language that I know. I said that's amazing. I said he just probably couldn't think of your real name and just what he called you. <laughs> right, right.
2: That's amazing. Yeah.
1: That's great. He was he was a, a a very interesting guy. I wish I could have known him. It, it's kind of funny how you know, you uh, you grow up and, and you you know, you shun certain things, but I never really got to know my grandfather because he died <clears> when <throat> I was six. Mm-hmm. But it would be fun to go back in time and kind of know him as a person, you know, because yeah. he was really kind of, he was an interesting fellow and and really smart. And um, my mom, you know, would tell me stories and stuff about him. So it would be kind of neat to, to go back and see kind of what made him tick, if anything. Yeah.
0: You're listening to the Experimental Film Podcast with Ken Hess. And now, back to the show.
2: Yeah. Especially since he seemed to have, you know, made an impression on so many people around your town, you know, you, it, it adds to the mystery of, well, who was this guy? And, uh, and what, 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 you know, what did all these things he said mean? You know, it's, it's an interesting idea.
1: Yeah, He was kind of a gruff guy, but, uh, you know, people liked him. He was, he was really, like I said, he was really smart and, uh, people liked to to talk to him. I guess he had a million stories or something. There was one of the best stories if I can take a moment of the time. Oh, here. of course. When they moved from Oklahoma to California, they were part of the grapes of wrath thing back in the, you know, twenties or whatever it was. They moved to California from Oklahoma <clears throat> and they moved to the Los Angeles area. And there was hardly any work because it was the, you know, the right, depression, right. I guess they moved in the thirties. Sorry. So, um, my grandfather couldn't find work, and he had been a uh, a person who worked in a grocery store and a hotel when he was young. Well, he just decided he was going to go to the oil field. So he goes to a place called Signal Hill. There, it's near Los Angeles, I guess. Mm-hmm. And he just shows up and starts working. People, the guy, the foreman, goes, hey, "You don't work here." He goes, "I do today." And he, <laughs> he works, and he just kept showing up. And finally, they put him on the payroll. And that's amazing.
2: Know, yeah, so, <laughs> I should try that. Like, just, yeah. like you know, just pick a pick a job that you want to do and just start showing up and doing it.
1: Yeah, kind of like, uh, what's his name? George on uh, Seinfeld.
2: Oh, yeah, 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 <laughs> yeah, for sure.
1: Or uh, good... Kramer. He he didn't work at the place, but he showed up and did stuff. Yeah. So anyway, um, let's see. What? Let me ask you this weird question. Do you have fun making your films?
2: Oh, so much fun. And it's funny because I I think one of the reasons that I started making experimental films were, you know, I do pretty much everything on these films i'll I'll, you know i write them i shoot them i i edit them and and do the sound design and the the reason i do all that because i have like lots of film filmmaker friends and and i work in the industry uh but i was i was on a lot of sets you know like when you're when you're doing commercial work you're on i was doing like 35 millimeter shoots back when 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 we were shooting a lot of film and you know there'd be 30-ish people on the crew uh and you know as a director you're you're really you know, thinking about all these departments and all these people and this big machine that you're you're trying to you know be efficient throughout the day, and then also get your actors to you know you know do the right thing. And I was like, well, what if I could take a break from that? And what if I could just do everything myself with a 16 millimeter camera and capturing sound? And I love the the process of 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 doing all that. So I'm not a great cameraman. I'm probably not a great writer. I'm an okay editor, but to do all those things myself, like, I just, I just love it. And especially not having to show it to a million people, uh, you know, in the advertising world and the agency world, you know, you always have to, you've got a million folks who are looking at it and they're all going to have their take on it. And you got to take all their feedback in. This is the one time when I'm like, you know, stand or fall, this is my film. Uh, and I'm making it myself and i don't have to collaborate with anybody i love to collaborate but not on this and this is just going to be mine and so i i feel that it's like a gift to myself um it can be frustrating at times cuz making anything creative
1: is frustrating but i i i have i have to do
2: it and i love
1: to do it very cool i'm glad <clears throat> i'm glad you enjoy filmmaking so much i really enjoy it too i don't get to do as much yeah. as i would like to but now that my linux book is done i can actually get started on some more filmmaking stuff that's great yeah that's good i have a quick
2: i have a quick question for you on 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 that because we both have worked uh you know for a while in in technology and, and enterprise technology too which is sort of a crazy subset of technology do you think that there is a connection between um working in technology and experimental films or just experimental art in general
1: yes and I'll I'll tell you, I have a, a co-worker who is also, and he lives in Kansas City, and he's kind of into experimental film and doing weird video stuff. So, yeah, I think there's definitely a connection because we don't have the same brain as other people. You know, experimental filmmakers have a different brain than narrative filmmakers or, mm. or even comedy filmmakers and, and so on. You just have a different, you have a different mind. And I think technology we gravitate towards technology and we gravitate towards experimental film because it's, it's not normal. You mm-hmm. know, I, I don't know. Else, I don't know how else to say mm-hmm. that somebody might be offended by that, but it's, <laughs> it's not mainstream. Let me say it that way. It's, yeah, not, okay. it's not mainstream and it's, you know, it's, it's offbeat. What we do yeah. with blips on a, a computer screen is weird. That's a yeah. weird thing. You, you take somebody from, you know, 300 years ago, and you tell them what you do, they would laugh or they'd right, whack right. you in the head with the musket or something. Right, right, right. You're nuts. You, you, you manipulate blips on a computer screen. Yeah. No, that's not a job. Yeah.
2: <laughs> yeah. And I know that like computer engineers, The like, ones I've met, uh, you know, throughout my life, they don't mind failing. They don't mind trying new things as long as they learn from it and they adapt, you know, there's this concept of failing fast and learning from it, which I think in most professions you don't want to fail fast in you know if you're doing brain surgery you can't fail fast there like in the law um but in in technology you can try things you know just to and i think like linux in in particular in open source communities your the whole idea is let's let's give this a shot like I see an opportunity to fix something or make something better or add something. If it doesn't work, we can just, you know, it just doesn't make it in the kernel or it just, you know, like I'll, I'll, I'll do better next time or I'll, you know, someone will give me feedback on it. But I love that about um, the experimentation in technology. And I, I really feel like that sort of does pretty one-to-one over into experimental filmmaking and experimental art in general.
1: Yeah. I think it's, I think it's kind of like being a rule breaker almost. You know, people who mm-hmm. originally like I did 20 somewhat years ago got into Linux, well we we were breaking the rules. In fact, I got reprimanded yeah. a couple of times for having Linux systems on our network. It's like that's not an approved operating system. I go, "Well, you know, it's the most it's the most popular operating system right, in right. the world." So, you know, you either need to get on on board or, you know, maybe you should find another career. But I'm not going to change what I'm doing because what I'm doing is actually right. Yeah. Like Kenneth,
2: Kenneth anger would have been a Linux user. Yes,
1: that's right. So I think all of them would, I think uh, everybody in that realm would, would probably have, have used Linux and, you know, had it existed at the time? Sure. I mean, why not? But yeah, I think there is a connection. I think it's that, I think it's that leading edge um, experimentation, you know, throw something at the wall and see what sticks. It's just kind of a, there's a mindset about it that, um, kind of a, what do they call it? The pioneering spirit. Yeah, for sure. You know? So there's, there is something to that. In fact, that would make a great psychological study. If there's anybody out there who needs a PhD project, (laughs) (laughs) find out what those connections are. So, yeah. So, um, what do you think, is the most difficult aspect of making an experimental film?
2: Oof, that's a good question. Uh, I know that what I wrestle with is, you know, I, I feel like I'm, I'm pretty good at coming up with an idea and, and the sort of the words to express the idea. I, I often struggle with, are the visuals that I'm creating to support the idea? Are they cliche? Are they, um, just don't make any sense. I don't want, I I don't want to Mickey Mouse things. I don't want things to be one-to-one, but I also don't want them to be so esoteric that they just don't make any sense. And so I struggle a lot, I think, with how am I going to visualize these things that aren't necessarily, you know, it's not a character. It's not a, um, you know, it's not a plot point necessarily. And so there are some times where I feel like, oh, I really nailed it. And there are other times where I'm like, I just don't know that that works at all. And, uh, know, I have this new film that's called 60 second thoughts. It's the volume two to 30 second thoughts. And I was showing it to a buddy of mine and, you know, so this has three films in it and, uh, the middle film, he was like, I don't know, that's ones, you know, like kind of out there even for me. And I'm not sure if that really works. And I, I have to, you know, again, I'm, I'm, I think to myself, is he right? Maybe, maybe it doesn't work. Uh, I like it personally. Um, but yeah, I think everybody will take, you know, something else away. So I think, yeah, it's, it's, it's making sure that the visuals are matching the tone and the, and the, uh, and the intent of the, of the film itself where is where I I struggle the most.
1: Right. I get that. Um, gosh, I had a question. I'll have to cut this out in post, but, um, I forget what I was going to ask you. Oh, well, let me, uh, let me ask you this while I'm thinking of it. Sure. (laughs) What equipment and software do you use? People always want to know, oh, yeah. you know, if they're using the right thing.
2: Yeah. So, you know, for years I was filming on 16 and super 16. Uh, eventually I succumbed and, you know, started shooting a digital, you know, very different cam- cameras every time. Cause a lot of times I'll use, um, you know, whatever I have access to either at work or, uh, you know, right now I have a, a, a Sony F3 Uh, which is an older camera but it still has this uh uh, a 35 millimeter sensor in it and i'll use some really old glass and get some funky stuff out of it um but then uh for post uh i really spent a lot of time teaching myself after effects uh which i would suggest anybody who uh, you know obviously you know you need to know how to edit i was an avid editor for uh, you know like 15 16 years and then i moved over to um final cut and then to premiere so i know the adobe suite but I'd say of all the programs that I've invested time in learning, um, After Effects has been the most satisfying once you are far enough on the learning curve. And by no means am I an expert. I'm not one of those people who has like knows all the expressions and can do all this stuff, but uh, it, it is super important to understand that program. I think um, for, for folks who want to do something that's a little bit beyond just um, cutting uh, and then I, I also use um, I use DaVinci a lot, not only as a you know a, a color suite, but I I sometimes edit in there. It does have like a lot of other components. So if you're looking for a free version of the Adobe suite, um, I would definitely recommend you know downloading DaVinci Resolve. It's a it's a it's a it's an amazing. Suite. I can't believe it's free. It's un sort of unbelievable. Um, and then right now uh, for my next for my next uh, project, which is another. Um, 30 or 60 second thoughts film. I'm teaching myself Blender, which is a, an open source 3d program. And I feel like that's another um, mountain to climb. Um, but I'm excited. I've done some tutorials in Blender. It's super cool. And again, it's free. Uh, like if I had these programs when I was 10, 12, 13 years old, I was working on a TRS 80, uh, you know, when I was that age. And like, you had these pixels that were, you know, gigantic and i was trying to do animation on those and like the idea that i have a now on my laptop i could use blender to do fully realized high-end 3d work for free is is un, unreal so the tools that are at our disposal right now are, is is amazing
1: yeah you're right they are there's some really good stuff out there i use um iMovie a lot believe it or not i use Oh yeah. premiere and i've used uh final cut but um you know I'm so in love with iMovie. And it does a lot of stuff and Yeah, does for it sure. Well. So I remembered the question I wanted to ask you or or this observation so for your for sequels for 30 second thoughts, here you go. It's yeah. 30 second thoughts. Yeah. You do 30 second thoughts. Okay.
2: yeah. (laughs) Yeah. No. So people have said because some people have said like, well, this actually is longer than 30 seconds. Like some of them are 40 or whatever. And and now the 60 second thoughts, some are 40 seconds and some are a minute and a half. So I keep saying, well, maybe it's that there's 30 of them or maybe it's that there's 60 of them. Um, But to me, the the pun of the title uh, is that it's it's second second thoughts, uh, which is you know, just you have to think again after you watch them and sure. whether they're 30 seconds, 60 seconds, or maybe that's how many I'm going to make. I do have scripts for probably about between 20 and 30 of them. And Kevin Silva, the, the voiceover guy has recorded, I want to say probably at least 15 of them. Uh, and I write more every year. So I'm thinking that I'm going to be doing this for at least the next five years, I'll try to do one of these volumes every year cool. um,
1: as, a, as a as a continuing project. I like that. I need to do something like that as well. But, yeah, the second thoughts part of it was where I was going with that. So, yeah, because when I first read that, I thought, is it 30 second thoughts or is it 30 second thoughts? You know, I was like, yeah, yeah. I thought, no, it's, it's like two minutes long or so. You know, OK, I'm just going to watch it and see what happens. <laughs> Right. 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 Yeah. Which is what yeah. you mostly do with experimental film. You're just kind of going a ride, you know? Yeah.
2: Yeah. Cause the original idea of it, cause I, I'd, I'd done so many commercials in my life and I, I like sort of the constraints of the 32nd format. Um, But, you know, commercials are supposed to convince you of something like, but, you know, buy this beer and you're going to be super happy or, you know, buy this car and buy in 30 seconds, you've got to make the strongest pitch you can creatively to, to get someone there. And so I thought, well, what if you, instead of trying to convince somebody to do something at the end of 30 seconds, what if you were trying to like open their mind or or confuse them or make them reconsider something that they might have thought? Uh, and I just thought that that was a funny enough idea uh, to commit to. Uh, and so that first volume of them, it's, you know, four very close to 30 seconds ideas packaged as if it's like a commercial break. So the idea that I, I thought was interesting instead of just, cause I don't really want to just send out a 32nd film to a film festival. I just feel like that's, it's just kind of weird and expensive. Um, but I kind of thought like, what if, it, you know, like in every television show, the commercial break comes on, you're seeing four ish uh, commercials in a row. They have stylistically nothing to do with each other. They've got nothing to do with each other in terms of content, but we all just sit through them and we, we make that leap from a beer commercial to a car commercial, to an insurance commercial, to, to whatever. Um, so I thought the same thing could be with these experimental films. I'm going to take you from, uh, a weird, uh, you know, fake drug to a, um, to whether or not we should have a, a, you know, a certain color for a revolution, uh, to like, what is the nature of evil, uh, you know, all in a commercial break size thing. And, and, and I'm going to just see what the audience thinks about that uh and i, I you know again it's it, maybe it's like a personal joke that i have but uh i think it's a of a, a, a fun way of, of doing something that's familiar to people but is just like a little bit weird
1: you know having you guys there and seeing your own films on screen it's a little intimidating isn't it because you know it's your work it's got your name on it people see it and you can hear the audience's reaction mm-hmm. and it's just it's just kind of off-putting to me sometimes i'm almost i'm almost a little embarrassed or apologetic when i see one of my films on screen mm. it's like oh god you know it's almost like a bit of exposure of yourself yeah and so i don't know maybe it's just me but, but it oh. always, it's a little intimidating
2: i always get the sweat like I, when i'm you know I, luckily i've had a long enough career and I, i've been in enough festivals where you'd think like you wouldn't have that those nerves but every time i'm in an audience and i can see where i am in the program and i know like oh there's two before mine oh there's one before mine i'm sweating it's as if you have to like as if i was standing in front of the audience myself reciting the film uh and i definitely get feel very exposed so i think that that is def- i definitely agree with you there like you feel this almost nervous performance anxiety
1: yeah, I'm I'm glad. You know, I in fact, I perform better in front of a live audience than I do when someone watches a film of mine. Mm. It's just I don't know what yeah. it
2: is. Yeah, it's a crazy feeling. You are exposing yourself. You're exposing your ideas. And you're also saying, like, this is what I think is worthy to show you. And that can be rejected. And that's yeah. like a personal that's very personal.
1: Well, you know, and the other thing is when it plays at a festival, you think, you know, is the audience going to like it? I mean, the judges right. put it in yeah. the festival, but yet are people going to say, oh, my God, how'd that get in the festival?
2: Yeah. Oh, you yeah. Know? Well, I was I was in um, <clears throat> I went to Vienna uh, this past summer. I hadn't been there in, in 20 years, but I went with 30 Second Thoughts and I went with uh, the voiceover guy, Kevin. We, we went together and he was sitting in the audience and he you know uh, you know again these are this is like it's academy award um uh qualifying festival. so the films in there are you know very high caliber they're again from all over the world and he was i think getting really nervous because he's seeing film after film that's like something you would see in a movie theater and he's like "Is our little film gonna you know stack up and he said that he felt this wave of relief just sort of midway through, he heard the audience reacting um, in the right way. And he felt like, yes, this, it sounds good. It looks good. And he said the yeah, this wave of relief came over him that he said, like, yes, we, we belong here. Uh, and, uh, you know, so I, I felt good about that too. Cause yeah, there's definitely a feeling like, oh my gosh, I, I don't know if, if my film um, should be included with all these other, and I thought the same way at, at your festival too. Uh, you know, you're seeing all these amazing films where people, had huge crews and we're really putting, you know, everything into it. And you're like, are, is the audience going to like my little film that I made in my basement, you know, as much as these other films. So it was great.
1: Well, you know, to answer that, um, and I, I guess this should lower our anxiety, but it might not anyway. But you know, the thing is that program time is so valuable in a festival. I mean, you, you really, when you curate films for a festival, when you put a program together and you, I mean, I know festival directors and, and people who do this, you know, all over the world, it's it's painstaking. It's not an easy process for yeah, us. For sure. And we want the audience to enjoy it. So we're not going to put in something that we hate, you know. So, you know, if you worry that your film, you know, if you're being screened, it's valuable enough to be screened and that's the way you have to remember mm, because nice. that program time is so valuable i mean if you had to pay for that it would be thousands of dollars sometimes tens of thousands at at some of those festivals like the one in vienna i mean just for a, a you know 2 or 3 minute film it would be thousands of dollars kind of like um, yeah. buying time at during the super bowl or something yeah because i mean you know you've got two hours or three hours of screen time and you think I need I want to put as much quality in as I can to this festival. So don't ever feel like you don't measure up because by golly, if you're in the festival, you measure up. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. Sure. And I think,
2: you know, <clears throat> what what a lot of filmmakers and I, I'm sure you have a, you know, perspective on this as being a, a festival director, but you know, I of course when I get rejected from a festival, I feel bad because if that always It always feels bad. And, and I would say probably like 80% of the film festivals that I submit to, I get rejected from, but I always have a really, um, a, a lot of empathy for the, the, the directors and the, the programmers of the film, because they're watching thousands, hundreds and thousands of films. And they not only have to find ones of quality that they like, and that the rest of the jury likes, but they also have a, you know, there's usually a theme or there's a, you know, a, a, you know, something that the festival is trying to say with that, with that year's festival that just programmatically you might not fit in that next year, if you had submitted the same film, it might've fit in. And so you obviously take things personally when you get rejected, but you can't take it too personally because it might just be that it just was poorly timed. And I, you know, I know that you've probably experienced a lot of things where you, man, I would love to put this film in, but the rest of the jury either didn't like it or, You know, it just didn't fit in with the rest of the program that year.
1: Right. Yeah. And I, I tell people that usually I write people letters, the ones that weren't, the ones that weren't, first of all, official selections doesn't mean the film is bad. It means this panel of jurors, you know, and it it could also miss by a tenth of a point.
2: Right. Exactly. Yeah. You
1: know, kind of like running in a, a race in the Olympics. Some of those things come down to tenths of a point, honestly. And you have to cut it off somewhere, and they think, well, why didn't my film make it? Mm-hmm. Well, <clears throat> and I, I submit to festivals too, and I, most of mine get turned down. I've, I've been accepted at some. I've won awards at some, with the same exact film, which is crazy. Right. Yeah,
2: I know. Yeah, and it feels so arbitrary, and and it's sometimes so frustrating uh, because you're like, I, I remember with this, with Thirty Second Thoughts in particular. I think the first like five films I submitted to. It got in every one. I was like, oh, I got a winner. And then I think like the next 20, it got rejected. And I was yep. like, well, what happened? What has? It's the same film.
1: I know. How- yeah. And to see, that's, that's what's so weird about it. And I think personally, this is the way I feel. If you've made a certain film, you need to research the festival and think, yes, Did this yeah, this film fit into this festival, like the experimental Absolutely. film fest, you know, I take experimental films. You know, and if someone makes an experimental film that they feel good about, they should submit it. Now, would I submit an experimental film to Sundance or Tribeca? Probably not, even though they say they accept them.
2: Right. Yeah, yeah, yeah.
1: You know, if you submit an experimental film to a let's say a mainstream festival. I don't know what else to call it. Like I'm also mm-hmm. the director of the North Carolina Film Festival. Mm-hmm. I, I don't own that festival, but I am the director of it. Excuse me. And um <clears throat> if if you submit an experimental film to that festival, first of all, the jurors are not prepared for experimental films. Mm-hmm. Right. We accept them and I'm I advocate for them, but the the problem is that people are watching Short documentaries, feature documentaries, feature films, short films, music videos, animations, horror films, on and on and on. And experimental film is not really their focus. Right. We did play one last year in the North Carolina Film Festival. This lady from Ireland submitted, uh, I think, two films to it. One of them played at the festival. It was really cool. She submitted to my festival and the jurors didn't select it. Huh, so wild. I mean, you know, yeah. Um, so I I don't know. It's just that's just the way it happens. But yeah, um, you know, I think that you really need, <clears throat> especially as expensive as it is to submit to festivals, and I feel this pain too. I mean, you know, I try to make mine relatively inexpensive, and you know, some of them are like thirty dollars to oh, you know, seventy-five dollars oh yeah. oh or God. whatever. Yeah, yeah, it's like, you know it's not that I don't value my own film. It's just that unless I'm submitting to a festival where I think I have a good chance, you know, I'm, I'm not going to spend that money because yeah. I just don't have it to burn. Yeah. And you I know? think you
2: have to, you know, what I found th- there was a period in my career when I was getting into a lot of festivals um, and I was sort of, you sort of build a little bit of a, a rep um, because people who program for, for festivals go to other festivals and they sort of see what's happening. And so year after year after year, I would get in bigger festivals and I would get in this, you know, the same festival sort of year after year. And, you know, it's almost like you realize that the pool, the, the, you know, so say like there's a hundred slots in a, in a film festival. Well, maybe 50 of those slots are already taken up with alumni that have another film that, you know, sort of sort of on the ins. not I don't want to say the inside in a bad way, but like they're known to the festival. Um, They've already have like a good relationship with them. And so, like, you know, half their half their programming is off the table and then. From there, it's like what will fit into the festival that year and what, you know, what the judges are. So like, there's like a smaller and smaller sliver of the pie that you have to fit into. And so it's almost like, I feel like when you're an early filmmaker or experimental filmmaker, who's trying to get into maybe bigger festivals, it's like, you have to kind of hit a bunch of festivals year after year after year. And then you can kind of say like, all right, I'm going to try for that stretch festival because I've sort of built a rep and um, you know, I, I've researched the festival. People have suggested, Oh, go to Uppsala this year because like, they're really looking for the kind of things you do or something like that. So, uh, or Rotterdam or Oberhausen or these other f- So, you know, I kind of feel like, yeah, you, you sort of become savvy about the festivals that you probably should be submitting to. Um, and then also the ones that like, you've got enough of a, I don't want to say a name for yourself, but you've got like enough of a, you know, other people have just by osmosis seen your work enough that, you know, you have a better chance.
1: Yeah, I agree. I I think that it's, you know, something you really need to, to study and focus on. I mean, some people just shotgun, throw their films at every festival. And it's like, you know, just because it's under $10 to submit or whatever, doesn't mean it's a good use of your money. Yeah. Spend $20 and, and put it in a festival that, that, you know, you, you're more suited for.
2: Yeah. And you said something in one of your earlier podcasts too, that I think every filmmaker should, should realize is that there are these festivals that aren't really festivals. They, they'll take your money and they'll quote unquote, officially select you, but it's just, you know, again, it's like a vanity thing. And, and they usually have the word awards in their title and they will sub, they will ask you for your film. They'll say, we want your film, you know, and, and that feels good. And so you give them some money and then They ask you to like buy their trophy and stuff like that. And again, like, you know, if you just, you know, want to have a laurel on your poster, you can do that. Um, But it, it, again, it won't feel, it won't feel like if you're doing it for like the love of it, like that won't feel really good over time.
1: You're right. And you know, it's really tempting if you're a new filmmaker, you know, new to the festival circuit, it's, it. It feels like something, well, I won an award and, and, you know, this is an award thing and, you know, you feel like it's legitimate and it's really not. And, you know, some of these people, you know, it's cost five or $10 to submit to the festival and then everybody wins. You know, it's kind of like the kids in the soccer game, right? Everybody gets a trophy. Yeah. But then they want you to buy a $350 trophy or something. Exactly. Yeah, for sure. "Mm, I don't think so. That's, that's not really what this is all about. What does, what good does a trophy do me? Right. Exactly. (laughs) (laughs) So, you know, the people won't see the trophy. They'll see the laurels maybe, but they won't see the trophy, but I don't know. It's a whole thing. And I could go on and on into that, but um, nobody really wants to hear that. But I do submit to festivals and I still feel a little raw when, when films don't get in. In fact, one year I submitted to this festival, got in, won an award with this film. And I thought, well, I'm going to submit to them next year because they like yeah, yeah, yeah. their style of film. And, and it, it it was a kind of an out there film festival. So I submitted one that I thought was really cool and it was short. It would have totally worked um, in their festival, you know, and they rejected it. And I was yeah. like, man, how can you not fit a minute and a half film right into your festival? If you like stuff that's out there, this one's out there, but yeah, you know, it's like, And I know the temptation is to write the festival director and say, how could you not?
2: Right, right, right.
1: seriously? But, you know, I mean, everybody feels it. And it's not really, it's just like writing. You know, a lot of people want to write. And I've been a a freelance technology writer for years. And everybody goes, well, how do you deal with rejection? I go, what rejection? First of all, (laughs) I haven't really had that many things turned down. Honestly, I don't want to make that sound, right, right. you know, haughty or 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 conceited or anything. But I don't have that many things turned down. When I make a pitch to somebody, I've done my research. It's just like you should do at a festival. I've done my research. I know what they're looking for. I've seen what has won in the past. The one thing I look for when people show their laurels, you know, I look at the festivals and I look right. and I watch yeah. the film and I think, okay, this is the kind of film those festivals are looking for my film yeah. wouldn't work there, you know? So yeah. the laurels on people's films kind of give you a hint as to what those festivals are looking for. So, yeah. and you know, here's a funny story in three years, we've never played the same artist twice.
2: Oh, interesting.
1: Not by, not by force. Cause I have different judges every year this year. I have yeah. 15 judges from a, a wide range of countries you know, at least six different countries, and there was one French guy, one French judge. He was really rough, but I knew that. I think I said this in the festival. I knew that when he put a nine on a film, that that was a pretty darn good film.
2: Mm-hmm. Right? Yeah, it was very so, discerning.
1: Yeah, and I, and, I
2: loved. Uh, the, you know, you had mentioned this at the festival too, which I, I thought was great. Is that you didn't provide the biographies along with the films? You just Made the film stand on their own for the, for the judges. And I, I thought that was great because again, it, 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 it keeps that bias away and it keeps like, Oh, that person's, I know that person from seeing X and Y or Z festival or, or, you know, like, or, Oh, they went, you know, they have done this or that. So yeah, they should get special consideration. I, I really love that you really um, hold true to the, whatever's on the screen is what should be judged.
1: Right. Yeah. And I, I've done that every year. I've, I've had the judges, what I call judge blind. They don't get to see a biography. They don't get to see where the person's from. All they see is what is on the screen. They see a title. They see, um, you know, if you ever, maybe I should take some screenshots sometime and, and show what the judges actually see. But all they really see is the, the film's title, the length of the film and a link to the film and the password, if, if it's password protected. But um, you know, if you if you have your name on the film, which you know most people would, um, you know, or thanking whoever, like the state of Georgia or whatever, then they're going to know those kinds of things. But I try to keep it as fair as possible because I don't want you know if someone's from I don't know where. Just let's pick a place. Let's say that you're from North Carolina. And you don't Mm want to see any films that aren't produced in North Carolina. Well, that takes away that prejudice. Yeah. You know, I don't want people, I don't want the judges to be biased in any way when they watch a film. I want them to watch the film, you know, and judge the quality of that film, you know. And, you know, is it artistic? Is it, does it deliver? And, you know, for an experimental film that, you know, frankly might not have a soundtrack or might not Mm -hmm. even have a point to the story it might be moth parts glued to celluloid. I want that to be what they judge, what they're yeah. seeing and hearing. I think that's so, great. Yeah, I, I try. I mean, there's still going to be some, you know, people have biases. You know, they don't like black and white or they don't like, you know, I don't know, water movies about water, <laughs> right, right, whatever, right, right. I'm I mean, anti-water. <laughs> yeah. You know, anti-waterists. <laughs> <laughs> or uh, what would they call it? Hydrophobic. They're right, hydrophobic. Yeah, they're hydra- hydrophobic film <laughs> judges. Yeah. So, you know, you, you get what I'm saying. I don't want, I don't want anyone to feel excluded because I want all flavors of people and films in the festival. And I don't want anyone to feel like, Oh, they're not going to take this film because I'm X, you know, yeah, because of yeah. me. It's exactly, like, yeah. I I'm, I'm trying to take that away. So you know and and hopefully it works. It seems like it has because last year I had an extreme amount of diversity in those films. I mean, mm-hmm. you know it was it was incredible when I started looking at, it, I thought, man, I've got a lot of female filmmakers i've and I didn't do the demographics like I did this year.
0: Mm-hmm.
1: um it was a little bit different this year because I think um you know lockdowns and <laughs> challenges <laughs> that were. You know, it was hard to get people, you know, the past couple of years to do things because of COVID. And I don't know, just everything that's been going on, um, you know, it's been a real challenge for filmmakers. And I totally understand. I think probably next year things will look more normal. In fact, I heard a lot of film festival organizers like myself, they were complaining that um, festival submissions were down in some cases Mm. as much as 50%. Wow, that's amazing. Yeah. I mean, mine were about like last year, the North Carolina film festivals were way more than the years previous. And so I think it's just, you know, it just depends. I think I think having the opportunity to submit a film to a festival that you know is going to be fair, because we don't, honestly, North Carolina Film Festival and the Experimental Film Festival, we don't have any quotas. You know, I don't right, have right. a certain number of films that have to be from North Carolina. And mm-hmm. North Carolina Film Festival, that's just its name. There's no requirement for us to show five films from North Carolina or whatever. And, um, you know, it just happens. You know, it just happens that I think two or three films in the festival were from North Carolina. Yours and Stefan's and maybe one other. Oh, the mm-hmm. the, um, the infusion number one. Right. Yeah. That, that yep. girl was from North Carolina. I say girl, lady, sorry. Mm. <laughs> but uh, that film was from North Carolina. And, you know, they didn't show up for the festival, which is unfortunate. I think that would have been a, a good addition. But uh, anyway. Yeah. I
2: wanted to hear, I wanted to hear about her, um, her film processing process. Cause, yeah, like when she's, I think uh, you had mentioned that it was processed in, bodily fluids or you know it wasn't
1: and medicines yeah her medicine medicines. yeah
2: i thought that was fascinating i would have I, I would have loved to have heard about that just technically like how that was done because yeah I, I know some people who do home processing of film but it, you know that sounded the most extreme that i've ever heard
1: yeah yeah there's well the the guy who did the dandelion film he processed. oh right in is. dandelion Juice, right? In, yeah. Dandelion juice, <laughs> as I called it. But yeah, I mean, you can develop film in almost anything, anything that will cause a chemical reaction on the film will expose it. So for example, I think I even said this at the festival, I developed some, um, you know, like camera film, not, not video film, but camera film, you know, still pictures. I develop it with caffeinol, which oh, is okay. a, like a pinch of vitamin C. Um, instant coffee, washing soda, <laughs> and um, I can't remember what else. There's four or five ingredients to it. Oh. it. It's all simple household stuff, and you get varying results. But, I mean, it's, you know, you can develop film in just about anything. It's crazy. And then do you have to use a fix
2: for that, though? Because, like, you still, like, when you're when you're doing um, still photography, you have to put it in the processing camp, but then you usually have to use a fix after it so that it doesn't continue to –
1: Right, it doesn't continue process. No, yeah. you know, there's no stop bath. There's no fixative. Um, just the water when you when you rinse out all those uh, chemicals. I guess the maybe the washing soda acts like a fixative. I'm not sure, but it you know um, I haven't really even though I used to be a chemist, uh, I haven't really studied the the chemical process. Strangely enough, of that, I just kind of feel like it's magic. There's some things yeah, yeah. that just be magic. <laughs>
2: Yeah, I know. Yeah, I I used to love going into a dark room to do, and it has been, you know, decades, but it's just, when you see that image, go, you know, you, it's, it's, there's nothing there. You put it in this bath of chemicals and slowly, 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 you see that image. It is magic.
1: It's amazing. Yeah. It's kind of fun. In fact, I do, um, some cyanotypes and, you know, I do, uh, cyanotypes, which, you know, come out blue. Mm Mm-hmm. And then you can tone those. You can bleach them and tone them. It's, it's really a cool process. I really enjoy doing that. In fact, I'm going to have to get back into that. In fact, one of the guys I interviewed on here, um, whose name escapes me, he'll kill me if I can't think of his name. Anyway, he's one of the filmmakers who I interviewed, I think, the in year one, um, season one of the podcast. He did a... a a Whole film, like a yeah, maybe a four minute or six minute film yeah. with cyanotypes. It like, yeah, it was like thousands of them, right? Thousands of them. I mean, 11,000 pictures, and Insane. then he had the quadruple, which made 44,000. You know, it's just That's nuts. amazing. Yeah, this guy goes to all these extreme lengths to make films. I mean, he, he does all this crazy stuff. You should listen to the podcast, it, it's in year one, but um, anyway, it's a lot of fun. And uh, I enjoy doing it. But so I guess we should probably wrap this up since we've been on. Yeah. Yeah. It's, yeah. it's been, a,
2: it's been a while. Yeah. yeah, <laughs> But yeah, but it's, so, it's such a joy to to talk to you and, and um, to hear your thoughts about experimental film. And um, yeah, I mean, thank you for the opportunity and uh, thanks for what you're doing. I think it's great. Not only the festival, but to have this podcast and to feature
1: filmmakers, I think is, is, is terrific. Thank you. I appreciate that. So do you have a website or other ways for the audience to check out your work? Yeah. Well, I have a, you know, I have
2: had a website for many years and then about 10 years I stopped updating it. So that's sometimes on sundays.com. But if you go there, you're, you're going to see like, you know, it's going to stop after a while. You could learn about my old films, but, but that's it. But I really have just gone over to Vimeo uh, and I just put my films there. Uh, and, uh, the link for that, you know, it's just one of those, you know, probably crazy links. I don't know if I have like a, a good, easy to remember URL. Well, it, um,
1: the one I see is oh, vimeo.com showcase slash four, four, nine, six, five, five, one.
2: I actually have an easier one now that I'm looking. Oh, I'm, good. I just looked it up. So it's vimeo.com forward slash bommler But of course, that's my crazy German last name. So it's B-A-E-U-M-L-E-R. So it's a, a bit of a vowel circus going oh, on good.
1: there. Yeah. In German, that would be <laughs> Boimler.
2: Yes. Yes. Yeah. Boimler. When I'm in Germany, everybody <laughs> knows how to pronounce it and everybody, it's just a normal name. And then in, in the United States, it's like wrestling with a, a vowel bear.
1: Yeah, that's right. <laughs> that's funny. So uh, thank you very much for coming on. Thank you for coming to the festival. I really enjoyed having you and congratulations on your audience favorite award because that award is actually voted on as you saw you got a you got a card to to vote on the films that's voted on right there at the festival as people were watching so that was great yeah Yeah. and um yours stefan's and three, maybe two others were in the fours Mm -hmm. so you know that's pretty impressive out of 21 films i think Actually, I think only three films were in the fours. Sorry, my wow. my totals are over there on the floor. But um, anyway, you did a great job, and and I really enjoyed it. The four vignettes and thirty second thoughts were just awesome. I I laughed a lot through it, and um, really had a good time. So thank you again for coming. I know that it's a you know a couple hours drive from. Wow, oh,
2: that was, yeah, was great. And I listened to your podcast the whole the whole way there and back. So it was really you know a great opportunity for me to to uh you know to hear your thoughts on experimental film and to hear some of the filmmakers that you featured in the past so i, I thought it was a great a great drive and a great time
1: yeah thank you and thank you for joining us for this 12th episode of season three of the experimental film podcast our guest today was experimental filmmaker dave Baumler. please get in touch with me if you'd like to schedule an interview Sponsor the podcast, point me to some cool experimental film.
0: If you would like to sponsor a podcast or schedule an interview, send an email to ken at experimentalfilm.info. Thanks for listening to the Experimental Film Podcast with Ken Hess.
1: or connect me to other experimental filmmakers, and we'll see you next time.